Hello, beautiful souls. We bring you conscious content filled with empowering information. Designed to align you with the fulfilling freedom of activated awareness. I am Rachel Alcyon. And I am Daniel Alcyon. Welcome Welcome to to the the Ecstatic Ecstatic Existence Podcast. Hello again, global family. Welcome back to the Ecstatic Existence Podcast. I am Daniel Alcyon. And I'm Rachel Alcyon. And we have a very wonderful guest with us in our studio today. So we're live together. That's always an extra special energy we get to share instead of being over the phone or Skyping with a guest. Our guest today is Sarah L. Blum. She's a decorated nurse, Vietnam veteran, who earned the Army Commendation Medal, serving as an operating room nurse in the 12th Evacuation Hospital, Cu Chi, Vietnam, during the height of the fighting in 1967. Sarah was awarded the Certificate of Achievement for Exemplary Service as Head Nurse of the Orthopedic Ward at Madigan Army Hospital in 1968. And because of her Vietnam experiences, Sarah is a practicing nurse psychotherapist with over 33 years of experience working with PTSD, trauma resolution, and including giving workshops to Vietnam veterans on PTSD. She co-created Recognition Friendship Day in Seattle, Washington on Veterans Day 1985. Against all odds, including threats by Vietnam veterans, Sarah helped bring together American Vietnam veterans and Vietnamese veterans for the first time since the Vietnam War. Sarah's book, Women Under Fire, is a stunning revelation of sexual abuses in the U.S. Armed Forces. Sarah obtained her black belt in Aikido at age 68 and continues to train and also teaches Aikido. She's also an African drummer, and at age 69, she began sculling. Sarah Blom is full of vitality, and loves to dance, drum, sing, and bring people together. Thank you for being in our lovely home today, Sarah. Well, thanks for inviting me. You have a lovely home here on the water. (laughs) Yeah, I'm so excited to share your story with our listeners, because you're one of the most unique and powerful women I've ever met, and you have a lot of wisdom to share. Yeah, Sarah comes in a very small package, and yet is so larger than life and full of vitality, and uh, I almost, I feel a little choked up right now beginning to, to share this introduction. I'm so glad Daniel led it because Sarah actually helped me save my life. Sarah, Sarah saved my life. So I, I, uh, I adore her and it's a real treat to have her on the show. Thank you, Sarah. You're welcome. You know, I think I want to talk about something a little lighter before we get into some of this heavier material. So you got your black belt in Aikido at age 68. Right. Talk to us a little bit about what is Aikido and what attracts you to that specific martial art and that practice. Cool. Yeah. Um, Well, it actually started for me a long time ago. I'm trying to remember. I think it was around in the early 80s. And I went to Antioch University in Seattle. And there was a teacher by the name of George Leonard. And he was presenting a workshop on energy. And so I went to the workshop. In the midst of this workshop, right about in the middle of the workshop, they did an Aikido demonstration. Well, I'd never heard of Aikido and never seen it before. And so here were these men, really tall men, and they all had on the black hakamas that looked like big, long black skirts to me. And they were doing Aikido, and it looked like a beautiful dance. And so I was just really struck by that. 
And I said to myself, someday I'm going to do that. Well, the someday didn't happen for many, many years. But when that day came, and it was like the year 2000, I think, and I walked in the door of the Keto Dojo, and there was this little woman, her name is Pam Cooper, and she was a sensei there at Aikido West Seattle. And I watched, and then she invited me onto the mat, and I started doing some things, and I thought, I could do this. And mm. so that was kind of the beginning, and then I trained for years and years and years until I got to the point where I had my black belt test, which is where you get multiple attackers all at once. And, oh, wow. And, uh, you you know, you need to do what you do in Aikido. And Aikido is a nonviolent martial art. That's the beauty of Aikido. And so you learn, in Aikido, you learn how to take any kind of attack of any kind that's coming toward you, and you learn how to receive that in the most open way, but you learn where to move to be safe and then how to respond to that attack in a way that keeps both you and your attacker safe. And I don't know any other martial art like that. So instead of smashing head-to-head into each other, it's more of a redirection of energy. It is, exactly. Yep. You take the energy that they give you, and you say, oh, this is interesting. Let's see what happens if we do this. (laughs) And then the person might go flying or whatever. (laughs) Yeah, and you really, there's like a purification that happens or a transmutation of it where it changes it into something else that's safe and loving. That's so powerful. And it's definitely one of the martial arts that your personal size doesn't so much matter. It's very effective against larger attackers because you're using their energy and redirecting it instead of trying to like come up and smash your energy into them. Right. So. Right. It's, it's really, yeah. So as a short person, I have an advantage mm. in the dojo <laughs> yeah. because so many people are, they're coming this way. And so they're headed, their energy is already headed into the mat. Right. And I just help them do it, <laughs> help them get there. And the bigger they are, the harder they fall. Yeah. That's awesome. You know, and some of the things that I love hearing from you are the way that uh, that, that translates off of the matter, outside of the Aikido practice into daily life where, you know, we get, you know, bombarded with different energies or maybe, you know, there's arguments that happen and then you're able to shift that. Right. The principles of Aikido can be used in everyday life. In fact, this guy that taught the workshop, he actually has written books about Aikido and he talks about how to use it in everyday life. But you know, I bring it in wherever I am and whatever I'm doing. If there's some kind of conflict happening, there's some kind of energy that, that uh, needs to be harmonized. I mean, that the idea of Aikido is it's called the way of harmony. So you want to bring harmony. You want to harmonize with whatever you get, right? It's not always easy to do, but you the, the idea of Aikido is to find out how can I harmonize with this, whatever the this might be, right? It's yeah. so much less work too, right? It's like what we resist persists and, right. and like having to be so like forcing and going against the flow. I love that you're just in the flow. And exactly. And it's all, it really is about flow. And the thing about Aikido, like anything else, when you're learning it, you know, it's step one, two, three, you know, and it's all kind of clunky. But the more you do it, the more you actually kind of feel that flow and get in it. And that's when it feels good. And that's when it looks like a dance. That's Beautiful. the beauty. Yes. So I go for the beauty that's in the Aikido, which is a demonstration of, of the beauty of harmony and how we can all have that in our lives. If we focus on that, and that's our dream, our vision, our goal, you know, that we want to have that. And then if we keep working toward that, we can have it. And if we stay in the flow, then we can. Well, now I'm feeling really excited and inspired to do Aikido. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
And so you've definitely taken this energy and idea of redirecting negative energy and increasing harmony into multiple aspects of your life. You do it in your own healing practice. And I'm really interested in maybe beginning now to talk about your book, Women Under Fire, and how maybe you're using some Aikido principles there in redirecting this awful attack into something completely different. So it's a really rough subject, and I don't think many people are talking about it. And this is something that, Sarah, you have a lot of firsthand experience with because you were there and you are a veteran. Mm -hmm. And so you can speak about this subject from the inside out as a female veteran. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about your book, Women Under Fire. Uh, What's the main subject and topic? And what's your goal of sharing this information with the world? Well, I wrote the book, Women Under Fire, Abuse in the Military, is the the subtitle. Um, The full title is Women Under Fire, Abuse in the Military. And I actually didn't set out to write that book, but I was getting all kinds of urges and prompts from different directions, um, mostly from spirit form. And so finally I agreed to do it. And my goal in doing it was to educate not only the public, but the members of Congress that can do something about this. So it was a long, long process. It was actually six years worth of working with it. And what I discovered as I was writing the book, and there were just many, many different uh, fits and starts, you know, getting there. Never wrote a book before. It's tons of information and how to hone in that information, how to uh, how to present it in a way that people can actually read it, understand it, and then uh, be able to respond. And I actually wrote the book so that toward the end of the book, it gave people a list of things that, that could be done to, to help make these changes. But that was, you know, that was actually a while ago. The book I finished the book in 2012. It came out in 2013. So what I discovered is that there is a culture of abuse toward women in our military. And that culture of abuse has been going on for decades. And it's been undermining readiness and morale of the women and literally destroying their health, their lives, and their careers. And it's still doing that today, still happening today. So um, it's sexual abuse, it's harassment, rape, and they all escalated. In 2003, when we went into Iraq, these started to escalate. And it got all the way up to 26,000 a year. Women being abused. Women being sexually assaulted. It's not all women. That number includes men. But my book actually focused on the women. Mm-hmm. And, and so, from that number of 26,000, how many get reported and actually documented? Less than 20%. Oh, my goodness. And, and, and I'll, I'll tell you why that is. So, so it actually leveled off. But think about this. It went all the way up to 26,000. Then it leveled off at 20,000. It's approximately 20,000. But is that acceptable? No, it's not acceptable. That's 52 a day. That means every two minutes, one of our service members is being raped, sexually assaulted. And so that has to stop. And it's not. It's not stopping. It's actually still going on. And I could tell you about what's happening now. But I, in those six years, between 2006 and 2012, I read everything there was to read about this issue, and I interviewed 58 women veterans from World War II 
that I interviewed a World War II vet, a lovely little lady. Her name was Emily, and she was in a in an assisted living situation in Linwood, and and woman was a Spitfire. And I interviewed her and got her story, and she never told anyone her story, ever. And during the interview, she leaned over to me and she said, "And you know." Why women are in the military? Women are in the military to serve the men. And and of course she's correct. I mean that's there's a, there's a belief of that um, that the so men I, believe that the men believe that. And so from World War II, her, uh, her and all the way up to current day Iraq and Afghanistan veterans, and over and over in their stories, they told me that if they report sexual assault. Or if someone else reports it on their behalf, which also happens, mm -hmm. that they are punished harshly, and the perpetrators are permitted to continue their inappropriate language and behavior, while the women, those that are victimized, they are ostracized, they're isolated, ostracized, and they're sexually and they're uh, humiliated and demoted and all of that. Yeah. Oh, sixty-two percent of the women that report are retaliated against severely, which means, yeah, they lose, sometimes they lose rank, they lose position, uh, but a lot of times they, they really lose their health because they're so distressed at what's happening to them. And this is all able to go on, my understanding is that because the, the military is a closed government system, so they don't adhere to the same laws that we as civilians adhere to. No, they have their own system of justice, if you want to call it that, it's really injustice. Injustice. From, from my perspective. So 95% of these assaults are perpetrated by serial rapists and repeat offenders. Listen to that number, 95% of all these assaults are by repeat offenders and serial rapists. So why is it that they get to be in the military and have this amazing target-rich environment to be in is because they have the support, the tacit support of the military to do what they do. And it's That's set up in such a way that if you were to even report it, there's nobody to report it to. You have to go to your next up in command, right? You have right. to go to your commander. You and so if they're one of the ones that's higher up and they're the perpetrator. Or they're supporting the perpetrator. Then it all gets swept under the rug. Exactly. Exactly. So you as a woman or a man that's being sexually violated have nobody to turn to uh, in that case. Which is why there's so little reporting. And why they're afraid to report. Because once they report it, then all the retaliation begins. Right? So, uh, a story. Let me give you a story. Yeah, I was going to say a few um, stories. Uh, one of the women that I talk about, her name is Colleen Mussolino. And she was an army cook in the 1960s. So, she was taken by four U.S. soldiers. She was taken into the woods. This woman was really strong and feisty and fighting and kicking and biting. And they took her into the woods. They put their knees, four guys, four guys. She was winning the fight, right? They had to put their knees on her arms. And, and then they eventually beat her unconscious so that four guys could take turns raping her. And then they left her there in the woods. When she came to consciousness, she was bruised on her head, her jaws, her neck, her arms. She was bleeding down her thighs. She tried to figure out where she was and where she needed to go. She eventually found her way to the, to the road where the military police finally came along and picked her up. They took her to the hospital, and they did care for her in the hospital. However, 
Next, CID took over. That's Criminal Investigation Division. They took over. They asked her questions from 7 a.m. to 4 p.m., five days a week for six weeks. Interrogation. They interrogated her for six weeks that way. And then at the end of that, they threatened her with dishonorable discharge if she did not sign their paper, which said she would not press charges. So that I, I tell her story because it's such an example of what, what actually happened. This is what the military protocol is for women that make it known in some way. Now, she, she was injured. Right. She was horribly injured, and she was taken to the hospital for care, and it was then that all of this other stuff started because they want to keep it quiet. They want to keep it covered up. Why do they want to keep it covered up? Because they're, they're interested in holding on to power and authority, the, the power and authority that they have, and they are interested in holding on to what they think of as this image of proud men, honorable men, in uniform. Serving our country. Serving our country. Yeah, just keeping that, like, the World War II propaganda poster image. Yeah. Yeah. You know, when I first heard about this, it was through that movie, The General's Daughter. I don't know if you're familiar with it, um, but Mm. it's it's basically the story you just told, and... Mm. Yeah, it's it's worth seeing. But, um, I mean, so these, there are many, many, many stories like this. I mean, I remember yeah. seeing that movie. Uh, the Invisible War. The Invisible War. And so that's also, for our listeners, really worth seeing. It sheds a lot of light on this subject, you know. It does. And some of these women, um, I mean, one woman whose uh, story really stood out to me was a woman who went to Alaska. She was stationed in Alaska. Mm-hmm. And she was the that's old... Trina. Yeah, and she was the only woman there for... That's right. Yeah, she with, lives in Tacoma. With, like, many other men, and they all regularly were raping her. Yes. And right. they wouldn't let her call out. She would try to speak with her family, but that's she right. couldn't say a word. They right. threatened to kill her. Right, right. That's, the, that's what I'm talking about. That's the culture of abuse toward women in the military that, to this day, the military has not acknowledged. And as long as they don't acknowledge that that exists and it's there, then... They're never going to do anything about it. Mm-hmm. You know, and I come from a military background. All my grandfathers were in World War II. Um, my uncles, my brother, I mean, dad, everybody's in the military. Um, and I remember hearing also about this when my brother went off to the Air Force Academy. Mm. And they have a huge problem there. They do. Um, and All so, the military academies. Yeah. yeah, so he was there at the Air Force Academy. And I remember Oprah was really shedding light on this subject. Mm-hmm. And a lot of stuff came out in the media about all of the, the young cadet girls there getting raped regularly and I went to his graduation and the things the vile things that came out of his mouth and the other guy's mouth about the women that were in their right. community yeah. was just awful. I'm yeah, like, why would you say that about one of your sisters in command? Right. And can you imagine? So this is the academy. These are the highest level of of candidates. The supposed elites. Elites that are in the academies that have that attitude. So where does that come from? It's already there, right? right? Right. It's already there, and they get indoctrinated into it. And it's the same thing with the military at large. So unless this culture is acknowledged and changed, nothing is going to change. And as long as women have to report these sexual assaults to someone in their chain of command, they are at risk to be harmed even more, which is what does happen. Do you know that if, 
if a rapist confession confesses, and it's very rare, it's not one of these serial rapists that confesses. It's some guy that just got out of control, right? Right. So when they confess, the military ignores the confession and they charge the woman with making false statements. And then they violate her rights even further and make her life a living hell. And that's, you know, that's how it goes. So you've written this book to draw attention to the situation, and the book got a lot of attention. It really got the attention of some some higher-ups. Yeah, you've taken it to Washington, D.C. many times. I went to Washington, D.C., and I had 70 meetings. I went to Washington, D.C. actually twice. The first time I went, I had 70 meetings in four days with uh, different members of Congress, especially the Senate and the House Armed Services Committee, and then some other key members that I thought might really help our cause. And I didn't have the book at that time. So then I went back a month later, and then I took 108 copies of my book, and I wrote a personal note in each one of them directed specifically at a member of the House or Senate Armed Services Committee and some of these other key members. And then I hand-delivered them to each one of those offices. And this was before they took the vote on the Military Justice Improvement Act which is the act that was promoted by Senator Kirsten Gillibrand of New York, that's the act that if they would pass it, would take reporting out of the chain of command and it would do a lot of other things as well. It would protect the women. Great. But <laughs> when they took the vote, there were a lot of men in Congress that saw the military in front of them at these hearings and how they are able to make themselves look and sound really good and like they're going to take care of the problem well they've been telling they've been saying this for decades right and they have yet to do it so anyway the military justice improvement act did not succeed it didn't pass and so that's still hanging out there and we're you know we're still working to get that passed because unless we can keep women safe in the military from their brothers raping them and assaulting them so it's it's both fellow soldiers that do this is doctors that do this it's commanders that do this And all of them, if they're higher ranked than the woman, what they do is they intimidate and coerce them. In many cases, they intimidate and threaten them into having sex with them, having it be like consensual sex. And but it's all based on intimidation because they can they can harm their military careers, which they do. The thing is, they end up being harmed no matter what. Right. Right. If they say no, they still retaliate against them. If they say yes, then they they have more to deal with with the assault, plus the retaliation that follows when they can't take it anymore. So it's a lose-lose for all the women. And under this current administration, it might not be looking like that act would get passed very rapidly. I can't imagine that this administration is going to do anything that's going to be helpful to women in the military. No. Now the question is, what do we do with this? We're aware of the situation now. And what can our listeners do, either if they've been victimized or if they want to contribute to some healing in this situation? Like, what can people do? Or know somebody step? who has experienced this. I mean, ultimately, every everyone on the planet has experienced some form of sexual trauma, but they're able to then go out and get get help. These women in the military are in such an isolated situation that they cannot get the help that they need, and they can't mm-hmm. let people know. So, well, there is there is. If they're active duty, if they're in the military and they're active duty, there should be a route for them, depending on them, where they are, 
there should be a way for them to be able to talk to somebody that's a therapist or a counselor. But how much is gonna, they're gonna get while they're active duty, that's, that's the question. The other thing is they have no protection from retaliation. Um, I know this is a, a long time ago, but the reason that I tell this is because it's still happening today. So back in 1997, there was a major uh, that actually testified against a drill sergeant from the Aberdeen Proving Ground. This is when they had that scandal. There was the Tailhook scandal in 91, then there's Aberdeen Proving Ground, which was Army. And these were Army instructors that were assaulting their students. So these are women that were coming into the military and being assaulted by their instructors. Like sweet young girls. Exactly. Like college age that want to serve their yes, country. Exactly. And then all their dreams are just completely shattered and destroyed. Totally, yes. And there, I mean, even recruiters are doing this to high school students. Right. So... Uh, so the, in 1997, this major, she testified against this drill sergeant. Um, in her testimony, she said that any woman reporting a sexual assault is going to find her superiors closing ranks and supporting one another rather than her or anyone else that reports it. That was 1997. Now, 20 years later, same thing is happening. I mean, it's maddening. It's hard not to go into this spiral of, like, what can even be done. Right. And so, so I'm excited that you're here because we're shedding the, the light of awareness, right? Mm-hmm. And that's right. that in itself is so healing, you know, speaking out, sharing the truth, letting more people know. Yes. That in itself is really healing. Right. So women in the military can actually reach out. There are women that are outside the military who've lived through it who are on Facebook and they're around in different communities who will hear what they have to say and then sometimes can help them. Some women on the outside can sometimes help them get out of the military or get to safety. And there are, in in some areas, they actually have access to some kind of counseling where they can get some help within. If they're already outside the military, they can go to the VA. The VA is a lot more helpful and positive now than they used to be toward women. They're actually, they've actually been forced to change by women clamoring for it. Um, this piece I told you about that I wrote, I wrote about invisible women veterans. So here's a piece where I can share from that. So a woman can be standing in line at the VA and there's, so like there's two um, male vets in front of her and then there's a woman vet and then there's a couple other male vets. If you can picture that in a lineup in front of a staff person at the VA that is you know, giving them, providing them with appointments or direction for where they need to go. And so she te- deals with the two male vets in front, and the next person up is the woman vet. She looks over and beyond the woman to say, who is the next veteran? And it's that kind of invisibility, and it's that kind of discounting that's even happening at the VA. So there are a number of VA hospitals, including Seattle right now, that have a separate entrance for women veterans so they feel safer, they can go in, they can be taken care of, they can get what they need, and they don't have to deal with that. Well, and it's crazy that it even comes to that, that there has to be a separate entrance for women. You know, and I have recently read an article about the level of discounting that all women do for these types of interactions. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so it, it, it's it's really infuriating that it's also happening in the military where these women are being of service. Mm-hmm. You know, but women put up with so much. They they have to uh, be overlooked and 
just ignore weird glances or intense energies or comments or side comments right. um, just to be able to go to work and be of service and get paid and right because exist in the world. I, what I wrote about was the culture of abuse toward women in the military, mm-hmm. but it actually exists in the larger culture. Oh, yeah. And, you know, in cities around the country and states, you know, and globally in many countries. And it, it is, it's a discounting of women and it's a... And it's a cultural phenomena, it's attitudes and beliefs that men hold, that women are there for their pleasure, women are there to serve them, it's an authoritarian position, and with the current administration in the United States, that's going to be promoted even more. Yes. Yeah. So women really need to support one another. Yes, and this is why we march. This is why we march, this is why we speak out, this is why we stand up for one another. Mm Mm-hmm. This is why we stand together in sacred sisterhood. That's right. That's and women can together. no longer be against one another. Regardless of what the situation is, women have to bond together. They do. And so, also, Sarah, you've used some of this that you're aware of, some of this abuse, maybe as a catalyst for your own healing practice. Because you provide support to people that suffer PTSD, women as well as men. Right. And not even just from the military. You help people of all walks of life, deal with their own traumas. And I love that trauma is really a a super popular word these days. It's like now, I mean, and in schools and, you know, when I took my yoga teacher training, it was all about trauma-sensitive yoga and how do we bring this big word of trauma out into the public eye and help people be supported through their traumas. Yeah. Yeah. It's good that it's, it's being known. Yeah, it is. Yeah. A lot of people maybe haven't realized how deeply so many people have been traumatized in varieties of different ways. I mean, many people come into adulthood and they've already been dealing with trauma from their early childhoods. And that trauma goes deep. And a lot of people have, as you well know, a higher level of consciousness and uh, a desire to evolve and to be the best that they can be and just actually be able to express themselves in the highest and best ways and be able to make positive changes in their own lives and the lives of people that are close to them and the lives of others in the communities and beyond. And in order to to be their highest and best self, they need to heal those places in them where they have experienced trauma because trauma tends to get stuck and it can actually be stuck even in the body, in the cells of the body. Yeah, and then disease ensues, illness. Right, right. And so it's in their mind, it's in their bodies and cells of their bodies. And once traumatized, then you can be re-triggered, you can re-experience the trauma. And it's hard to know even what kinds of things are going to trigger that. And so being in therapy is one of the ways that people can actually heal from those traumas. And we, we like to go, I like to take people as deep as possible to find out what happened at the deepest levels of their being and in their in their lifetime like it can go all the way back to prenatal when they time when they were in the womb and what might have been happening with their parents between the parents at the time what could have happened even physically you know there could have been some kind of violence and that baby realized that the physical baby growing in the womb is that physical baby's body grow in the womb but that soul is right there the soul is right there taking it all in 
seeing, hearing, experiencing. Making decisions about and this then, life. Right. And then the decisions made by infants and little toddlers. And usually those are decisions that are made under some kind of duress with a lot of emotionality. Those decisions then stay with them. They become unconscious. As you grow into adulthood, you don't remember that you made those decisions, but they are affecting your life and they interfere with life. They interfere with the best of life, right? And so in therapy, we need to uncover what those were. What were those conditions? When was that decision made so that that can be changed? Because as an adult, we do not have the power or the authority to override any decision that our child made at any age. So the only person, the only part of you that can actually change that decision is the child that made it. So if it was a prenatal, when the decision was made, then we need to take you back to prenatal time and you need to have an experience of being in the womb and being safe and connected and being um, acknowledged and cared for in the highest and best ways in the womb. Having that feeling, that experience of being safe and connected and being nurtured and cared for and have your needs met, then under those circumstances, that prenatal baby can make a new decision. And a new life. And and have a new life. And, and usually there's many decisions that were made that interfere with an adult's life experience. Like they come in unhappy about something or depressed or anxious or whatever it is, and then we need to uncover and find out what were the early decisions that they're still living with. Remember, these babies... Infants, toddlers, when they make these decisions, they're making them for, at the time, the highest and best reasons. They're making them to survive and to thrive in the best way they can, but they have limited abilities then to make it. So they make these decisions, then then later as an adult, that becomes the problem to solve, is that they have this decision that they have to live by, and it's not working anymore. Right, like if you come in and have an experience as a young child where it's not safe, and then you decide that it's an unsafe world, and then you continue to live out your life into your 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, that the world is unsafe, I mean, that's going to taint every single relationship that you have. You won't be able to trust people. You know, you're going to be constantly living in some level of fear or anxiety or... uh, And it saps your energies as well. Yeah, yeah. So what you're describing here is very different than talk therapy. You're not a talk therapist. Yours is experiential, and there's you get the body involved. Mm-hmm. Um, is there a specific name for the type of work that you do? Um, it's been called by many names. Uh, it's been called passivity confrontation therapy. I actually call it trauma resolution therapy. Part of what we do is, is corrective parenting, and so it's called, been called that. It's been called developmental psychotherapy, and all those are true. They're all true. You know, they you can use any one of those names and it'd be true. And I don't know that there are a lot of people that do this kind of work. No, it seems very, very specific and unique to me. So under this name of corrective parenting, are you able to give us like a, just an example of what this would even look like? What is corrective parenting and how can, through this therapeutic work, people go back and recreate a decision that we've made? We talked about these like mistaken beliefs or decisions that this young person mm-hmm. made. So mm-hmm. how do you help get them back into that area where they can remake a decision they made at two years old. Or even get them, get them to the point where they begin to acknowledge that there was a decision or even an issue. I mean, when I came, first came to you, mm-hmm. you know, I was like, you know, my life's great. I don't know. I just feel kind of off sometimes, but 
I think it's pretty good. And then you were like, wait, but Rachel, you just told me this, 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 and this happened in your life. And I'm like, oh yeah, wow. That was really messed up. So yeah, uh, walk us through the process. Yeah. Like, what, what does this look like? How do you help people start to shed the layers and get down to the core of what's going on? Well, we I always start with where they are, you know, and what's going on. And I get as much information as I can. And I try to get information that goes all the way back to when they were conceived. I, I, I take that into account. So I do what's called a life script questionnaire and I get them to answer questions. But I also ask specifically, what, what do they know about their prenatal period? you know, conception and through the birth and what kind of birthing they had, whether they have any birth trauma. Birth trauma is a huge issue for a lot of people. And most people don't even acknowledge that. They don't even know whether they had any Well, it's hard to remember that far back, you know? Right. (laughs) But the body remembers. But it's in the body, right? The body remembers. And so that I, whole thing with the birth trauma is just built into our Western medical system, which is a whole other topic of a show. But, you know, you right. get a little newborn that's entering into the world, getting yanked out on their skull with forceps or like, oh, you know, horrible. getting pulled out through the mom's belly with C-section and having all their own willpower taken or right away. Totally and, drugged up. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, there are all those things that people have to deal with. So, yeah. So I try to get as much detail of the history as I can and what, what kind of traumas they had and when they had them and what, what was it like when they were prenatal do they know what their mother was going through at that time what was her father going through and what was their relationship like I get as much of that detail as I can of all the different stages Uh, a lot of times people come in and they have like scarcity issues and we know depression and scarcity issues we know from from our study of development that those go all the way back to the first six months of life so so any of you suffering from depression and scarcity or lack mentality right. may may need to really revisit that area. Yes, if you go back to those first six months of life and if you can remember or, or know or hear the stories of what was happening, what was happening in your family then, what was it like for you as an infant then? How did your mother look at you? When she looked at you, what expression did you get from her? How did her body respond to you? What did she say to you? How did she handle you, your little baby body? All those things are really critical to what the baby's experience was. Same thing with dad. How how did dad respond to you? How did he talk to you? How did he hold you? Did he hold you way out in the air like you were some kind of foreign object he didn't want to get close to? Or did he cuddle you close and nurture you and keep you safe? All these things have a bearing. And so collectively all the things that happen to you all the things that are said and done to you the way that you're treated they all have a bearing on what happens to you so in the first six months of life if your mother for example was depressed you're going to be depressed when you get older because you're going to absorb you're like babies are like little sponges and they absorb the things that are going on around them especially with their mothers so we know that and so if we just talk about that piece, remedies then in therapy, like what I do with people is I bring them, first of all, bring them to the point where they have enough trust in me to be able to do the work. And I do the work in groups because we have a lot more resources in the groups. There are many, many more eyes on the therapist because, you know, even therapists can make mistakes and do things that are incorrectly. and We don't want you to be re-traumatized at that level. So if we do it in a group, then you know that you have all eyes are on what's happening and the therapist is, you know, probably likely not going to do anything that's going to be harmful. So in the group, then 
we would take this person who's now an adult and I would regress them back to when they're an infant. And I would want to go back to the earliest stage that they can go. And then I'm physically going to hold them, hold them in my arms and hold them in a way that their heart and their heart chakra are actually exactly opposite mine so that those two heart chakras are together. And then I'm going, mine is going to be open and there's going to be a continuous flow of universal love that's going into them, into their heart and their heart chakra while I'm holding them physically. And then I'm, I'm regressing them back to that period of, of their life. And then I'm giving them all the affirmations that they needed at that time that they did not get. And then sometimes this is also supported by a father figure as well, right? Yes. So they get to have the love of both they a mother and father. They get to have both father. a mother and father, right. So, and I have a male co-therapist who does do that. And and so he would be the dad. And, and it depends. It's a process that we go through. So, you know, in the beginning, I'm not mom and he's not dad. We're just who we are, right? Ultimately, they can choose if they wish and it will serve them. They can choose to have a contract. That's what the corrective parenting is. They have a contract with me to be a healthy mom. They can contract with him to be a healthy dad. And those contracts are also specific. They have to write up specific things that they expect from each of us. And we have to look at them and determine whether or not we're able to provide that and say yes to what we can provide, no to what we can't provide. And so, yeah, so if we had those contracts in place and we were doing this, then he would be there. And the person that is the one that's receiving this they would decide how they want it set up. They get to decide. So they're always empowered through they're every empowered. step of the way. Right. So they tell me what they want and need from me, and they tell him what they want and need from him, and then they and then we respond to that. We, we provide it that way. And it's such a juicy experience. Gosh, I can't think of a single human on our planet that couldn't benefit from that. Right. I can't either. Like our, like our administration right now <laughs> could really use that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Let's set that up. Yes. We'll, we'll get Sarah to we'll do We'll regress st- Trump yeah. and he can be held. Oh, I don't know if I could do it. <laughs> <laughs> I think I know too much about him. Right. You'd have to really practice your unconditional love. Really and and actually, it. so somebody like him, so that's a good point. So somebody like him, he actually is not in a place where he could receive any of no, that. No. No. So that's important to realize that people like the man that we're talking about, um, he is not in a place where he could ever receive that. He wouldn't even recognize it. You know, if it was right in front of him, he wouldn't recognize it. Yeah. So those are not good candidates for this kind of therapy. Yeah, you touched on that you need to develop the trust first. That's really, really important because the people are going to let themselves go into what is a very vulnerable place. Exactly. By allowing themselves to be brought back to infancy or even before that, right? Right. And another thing that you touched on is the dynamic of the group which is really important and that, you know, it does have multiple eyes. And then something that I've experienced by partaking in some of your groups, Sarah, is the wonderful energy that you get of just holding space and participating here. So even if you're not the the person receiving this work, maybe somebody experienced a trauma when they were young and then in their working through it with the therapists and themselves, then you might see a little mirroring that maybe something happened that was similar in your story, maybe on a lesser level or maybe a slightly different flavor, but like, oh, this happened to this person that was traumatic. And I see a story that mirrors that in myself. And so even when you're not doing the active work, you still receive a lot of healing from being in the circle. 
or that's even... the val- yeah that's the value of the process and the way we do it that we always do it in a group environment so the group becomes what i refer to as a healthy family so all of the trauma that happens to people usually happens in a certain context and often it's in the family context mm-hmm. so yeah so everybody there has agreements contracts and they they honor those contracts and so part of their contract is to be present and to be proactive in the moment. And so what you're describing, Daniel, is that, yes, when somebody is uh, the focus of the attention at the time and they're receiving and they're going through some kind of trauma they had, there are probably five, six or more people in the room that are tuned in to some aspect of what's happening and they're each getting something different from it and it's generating in them memories and feelings And then we work with all those people that got triggered, right, by that, and something's come up for them. Then we work with them, and that's the beauty of the process is that everybody can constantly be gaining from it and healing from it. Well, and something that I think is really beautiful about the process that isn't necessarily the the trigger is that there's the healthy modeling. I I mean, I could go and sit in on on these group sessions time and time again, just to receive the healthy modeling. You know, it's like it boosts serotonin levels and oxytocin levels just to see two people communicating in a healthy way and hugging and being loving. I mean, there's not enough of that being represented out in the world. So, so people don't get to see like what it's like when it's working. We see what it's like when it's not working. Right. Right. And when you think about like you made earlier, you mentioned yoga. And so, you know, you go to yoga studio and the teacher demonstrates So what you're describing is we're demonstrating how to live in a healthy way, how to be honoring and respectful of one another, how to honor and respect the space that we're in, that we're in a sacred environment, a sacred space. And and we model that constantly. And yes, how to communicate with one another, how to deal with a conflict that might come up, how to make decisions together. We sometimes bring the entire group in on making a decision about something, particularly when we're at one of the weekend events. You know, and we might have to talk about something that's happening at the time and our ideas about how we might handle it. And is there anybody that's having an issue with any of that? And how can we address that issue? So we're taking all of it in and we're empowering everybody in the room. Yeah, there's some really cool communication structures that are set up inside the group dynamic. Mm -hmm. Um, People talk to each other in ways that you just don't hear out in the world, but... It would be nice if we did, mm-hmm. you know. And so in these group dynamics that uh, Sarah sets up, you'll hear interesting things like instead of just asking somebody to do something. Yeah, can say, you get me the blah, blah, blah? Even with the please on the end, it still sounds kind of harsh. Right? Yeah. So there will be an asking of, are you willing to get me this or do this for me? Mm-hmm. Or are you willing to hear something from me even? Yeah. People so frequently are just imposing their own beliefs and opinions and right. ways of doing things on others. Right. But it's really amazing to be able to ask if somebody's even open to that kind of feedback. Right. Fantasy checkouts. Yeah. So like, you know, somebody is perceiving something from somebody maybe across the room, some look they have or something or something they said to someone else. And in their worldview, that was something about them. Right. right. They have nothing to do with them. Right. Like, oh, they must think I'm so weird or gross right. or whatever. Right. Yeah. So then a fantasy checkout, you know, or maybe somebody does a piece of work and it's about shame. And so then they may do a fantasy checkout with everyone in the room. You know, my fantasy is that you are judging me because of what you just heard about my history and my past and what I just went through. 
Right. Is, is there, there any truth to that? And then each person gets to be very honest and forthcoming right. and share right. if, if there's no no truth or if there is truth, truth and what and that then is you work and that what that out. means to them and then you right. work out that level of, <laughs> right, of right. unfolding. Right. Yeah, yeah. It's very yes, it can get very complicated. <laughs> and yet it's the one of the things that has impacted my ability to live an ecstatic existence. You know, I see you, Sarah, out there living a completely ecstatic existence Mm -hmm. and advocating for everyone in the world to be able to be functioning at that level. Our military sisters, everybody on our planet. And so these are really incredible tools to be able to do that. I think these are amazing tools that I truly wish that everybody could have these experiences, heal everything they need to heal within them, so they have a full sack of great, awesome tools that they can go through life with. And if one doesn't work, another one will. And they have all that they need to live an ecstatic existence and to really thoroughly enjoy everything that there is to enjoy about life. Yeah, and interacting with one another. I mean, we're here on this planet having many different relationships, you know, with ourselves and with each other and with mm-hmm. our environment. And yes. how can those be the, the best that they can be? You know, and one of the things I've heard you say is that often when people get in relationship, they're really just like dumping their infant off on someone else's doorstep. Mm-hmm. What can you <laughs> say about that? What is the phrase that you use? All right. Well, what I say is that um, sometimes people that come in to for services to come in to to receive therapy, that they have the mistaken belief that they can just bring their little baby to me and drop the baby off on my doorstep, and that is not the case. Because they need to be accountable for their baby. But people do um, that to their husbands and their wives? They do. They do that. They, sisters, brothers, yeah, you name it. They right. do that. Yeah, and so it's important for people on the receiving end of that to realize what's happening and to say, no, this is your baby. I'll help I'll help you take care of this baby, but I am not responsible for your baby. Right. Yeah, your emotional baby. Mm-hmm. So what about people that are in different areas of the country and even in different countries? Because we have people from all over the world that listen to this program. So where can they start to find out wow. if maybe one of their therapists could provide this kind of service? Or like, where does somebody even go if they're really interested and don't know where to start? Um, boy, I don't know. Uh, that's a good question. I guess I would I would ask them to seek out in their own communities who are the people that are spiritual leaders and who are counselors or therapists and to find out if there is a therapist or counselor that has both of those that works on both of those levels because this this particular kind of therapy it it does work on all levels it works on the on the body level the energetic level the spiritual level the mind, you know, the mental level, the emotional level. So I think starting out by finding out who's in your community uh, and what there's, what their beliefs are and how they work together and see if there's anybody that, that works with trauma that actually has some therapeutic background and maybe is also working on a spiritual level. And the combination of those, I think, is probably the best thing. Find out if there are any therapists in their community that work with groups and what kind of groups and how do they work. You really need to find somebody that lives their life the way they're promoting. Yes, because there's so many therapists out there that have never done their work. Right. They haven't done their deep healing work. They haven't healed their own traumas. They're not... Right. They don't have people that they can go to to receive uh, yeah. wisdom. I remember before I became a therapist, 
and I went to see a psychologist and um, and I was talking with him and I told him about my idea that I wanted to become a therapist at that time I was getting a lot of messages that I would be good at that and so and I asked him well what are the requirements like don't I have to like go through some therapy first and he said no there aren't any requirements I said you mean anybody could just go do that? <laughs> yeah, and then they can prescribe meds and stuff. Oh, and I was really? just appalled. Uh, anyway, um, and I think that it's true. I think there are a lot of programs where you don't actually have to have done this therapy. But I, the way that I got through this, the way I got came into it uh, was I was working through my own PTSD issues and realized that underneath the PTSD was all this child stuff that I didn't even know existed. Right. And then I met Elaine, Elaine Charles Gao, who actually developed this, this system of therapy. And um, so I went to a workshop that she was doing, and then I asked her very specifically at the end of the workshop if she would be willing to work with me. And, that, and so I got into it by work, doing my own work first, and then... Uh, and then I worked with her for a while. I became an assistant co-therapist with her and then eventually uh, went on and did my own thing. So I think it is important for whoever you're working with to have really done their work because then you can trust that what you're going to receive from them is going to be clearer mm-hmm. than you might otherwise if they haven't done their work. Right, because you had just gotten back from Vietnam, you know, and so with all that trauma and like imagine if you hadn't worked through I can't imagine it all of that right. and trying to serve yeah. in this way so yeah if you haven't walked a path yourself you're not very effective at teaching others to walk it and there is a saying that you can only take someone as far as you yourself have gone that's and right. i think that there's some truth to that that's right you know and in terms of you know have uh you know 13 years experience in uh structural integration and body work massage and so many of the healers don't get their own healing. And I'm like, well, how do you, how do you know that what you're providing is even relevant? And, you know, and every time I receive the work, I have a a deeper insight as to what I'm providing for my clients. So, yeah. Yeah. And in this process that we do, safety is like really critical. Really? Um, It's emotional safety. It's physical safety. It's energetic safety. Safety. It's spiritual safety. And so, I mean, I was just mentioned body integration. I was just thinking about, how many women that I've worked with over the years where I'm doing body work and energy work on them and my hands are physically on them and I don't have any particular intention other than to follow what is there and to uncover or discover whatever needs to show up, right? And oftentimes what will show up is some kind of sexual trauma that may have been when they were a toddler or younger. And so... I have to be able to handle whatever it is that's going to show up and deal with that in the highest and best way for them, right? Yeah. Oh, these layers go deeper and deeper. We just tied it back into our earlier subject, you know? So, Sarah, thank you so much for sharing with us and our listeners both about we, well, we've covered three topics today. We've covered Aikido, which is really cool. That was our yes. intro. And then got into some of the gruesome realities of sexual trauma in the military. And then we've moved into uh, some corrective parenting and 
really effective therapeutic solutions to mm-hmm. dealing with trauma. Yep, how to heal. So would you mind sharing with the listeners where they could contact you directly if they have questions about this, if they'd like to work with you? How do they get a copy of your book? How can they get you to come sure. speak at their event about any of these topics? Okay, sure. Um, so I have the two websites. Uh, I have the, my own professional website, which is called Sarah's, Sarah's with an S on the end, sarahshealinghaven.com. And they can reach me that way on there. And um, if they're interested in working with me, we can communicate that way and then go from there. I also have a womenunderfire.net website, womenunderfire.net. And that website, they can access the book. And there are tremendous resources on there for women that have been sexually assaulted in the military. Uh, Not everything, but it's, it's full of great resources. And there's a way for them... If I remember correctly, there's a way for them to contact me through that website as well. There's also a media button on there that has lots of information about me. And uh, they can contact me through either one of those websites if they want me to come and speak to them or share with them or talk with them about any of these subjects or if they want to work with me. Um, I think it's that pretty well covers it. That's great. As always, those web addresses will be included in the liner notes of the show. So you can just click on those links directly and learn more about Sarah Blom and the amazing work that she's doing in this world. I am Daniel Alcyon. You can reach out to me. You can get me via email, daniel at ecstaticexistence.com. Make sure to check out that website, ecstaticexistence.com. I love working with people individually from all over the world via Skype. So reach out to me and let's discuss what that looks like and how we can best meet your needs. And I'm Rachel Alcyon. You can find me at rachelalcyon.com as well as on the social media sites, Facebook and Instagram. I love connecting there. And I would love to be of service to you in whatever uh, healing modality you feel would best suit your needs. So that could be a VIP day or an entire weekend retreat with me. Uh, I specialize in women's wellness. So yeah, reach out. There's a lot of love. And as always, this program is listener powered and supported so we love your support and your feedback and your encouragement you can do this in multitude of ways number one is word of mouth tell your friends tell everybody you know about the healing information you're receiving here probably learned a lot of new things in this episode that you were unaware of before so expanding your horizons Mm -hmm. and let everybody know Yeah, our global family is constantly growing. And so the more you share, the more this healing medicine can reach everybody that needs it the most. And it takes a lot of time, money, and energy to produce this show. So another way that you can support us is through donating to our Patreon account. You can become a patron of the show and any bit helps. So you can be a one-time donor through PayPal or you can be a monthly donor. And there's various gifts at different tiers. Uh, of support. So, and you also get to sit back and know that you have made a huge difference in the world by contributing to this awesome show. Yep. And your contributions go to promoting our bandwidth and storage and hosting and posting and all the things we do to keep the show going and available to people all over the world. Completely ad free. Completely ad free. And we're going to keep it that way. So we appreciate all your help. We love our sponsors. Thank you so much. Yes. And also, you can reach out to us at the Ecstatic Existence Hotline. This phone number is 206-249-9064. 
Call us with feedback about the show, questions, comments, if you'd like to get in touch with any of our fabulous guests. Yeah, maybe you or someone you know wants to be on the show. We would love to have you. And we've been just delighting in the messages that have been coming through. It's so fun to know who's out there. So, I mean, maybe you just want to say hey, you know, or uh, maybe you need some, some deeper support. Call the hotline. Yep. We look forward to connecting with you further. We love you all. To live an ecstatic existence and to really thoroughly enjoy everything that there is to enjoy. 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 Everything that there is to enjoy.